Have you found the book of Malachi yet? Yes? Put it up on your device. Okay, y'all ready to go? Well, we're going to continue on the second message in this four-week series on the book of Malachi. We introduced it last week. But today we have the pleasure of having someone that's going to weigh in on this and also give us more information from his recent experience at Asbury. When you come to getting started, one of the things you will learn is that Christ Community Church was started as a church plant back in 1997. An individual that's going to bring our message today was that person who was our founding pastor. He, along with his wife, Pam Coward, planted Christ Community Church back in 1997. And in 2018, uh, there was a transition. You know, I took over as lead pastor. Um, he went to be a superintendent for a brief period of time. And then in 2019, at our general conference of the Free Methodist Church, he was elected bishop, one of the three bishops for our denomination. He currently serves the Eastern Seaboard to seaboard of the United States, including South Central United States, as well as overseeing Europe and the Middle East. The Free Methodist works in Europe and the Middle East. And it's with great pleasure that I'd like to introduce our preacher today, Bishop Keith Coward. <laughs> Keith, we welcome you. Thank you, Derek. Preach, brother. It's good to be back. Thank you, brother. It is absolutely uh, good to be back. It's good to be home. Uh, I'll tell you that no matter where Pam and I are in the world, this is always home. Um, and we will always treasure opportunities to come back and to be here at home with you. I, I know that uh, many of you don't know us. Uh, it was several months ago, um, sometime last year, there was, we, we were here one Sunday, and uh, it was a Sunday where you had the tables in the, in the sanctuary. Maybe you remember that day, and we were sitting at a table in the back corner over here, and at some point, there was an invitation or the request to, to speak to one another and get to know one another, and we turned to a young couple next to us, and, and they said to us, well, how long have y'all been at Christ Community? <laughs> And I want to tell you, I absolutely love that. We love that when we come back, we love seeing the old faces, don't get me wrong, uh, but we also love seeing new faces, and we're so glad that, that you are a part of this family of God at Christ Community. Um, as Derek said, uh, I'm going to be uh, plugging into the, the message series on Malachi, but I have a confession to make. Uh, I actually invited myself here this morning. <laughs> I, uh, I called, I don't do this very often, but I, you know, when you experience something as unbelievable as what we experienced at Asbury in Wilmore, Kentucky, it's the kind of thing you can't keep to yourself. You, you want to give it away. You want to share it with others. And so I called Derek and I said, hey, Derek, if there's a Sunday where you want me to come and give a testimony, I'd love to do that. And he said, well, we'd love a testimony, but can you also preach on Malachi? And when he first said it, I thought, well, I'm, that's going to be a reach to connect Malachi to, uh, to the Asbury revival or outpouring, as we're, we're calling it. Uh, but when, he, uh, when I looked at the specific passage that he asked me to speak on, I thought, wow, there's a, there's a perfect connection here. So I'm going to come to Asbury. I will get there in a little bit, but we're going to start with Malachi. 
If you hadn't seen last week's message, I want to encourage you to do so. I watched it, um, and Derek did an outstanding job of giving you the background and context for the book as a whole. The people of Israel were in a sorry state. They had returned from Babylon. They were back home, but they were still under at least a measure of oppression uh, from the king of Babylon. The temple was just a shell of its former self. And the promised land that was supposed to be flowing with milk and honey was not really providing for their needs. And, And the people began to question God. They questioned God's faithfulness to his covenant. They wondered if God still loved them. They even began to ask, what good is it to be the chosen people of God if there's no blessing in it? And through the prophet Malachi, God said, I am so glad you asked. Let's get real and let's talk about what's actually going on. So we're going to come to Malachi 1, starting in verse 6. Now, I'm supposed to cover through 2, 9. That's a long passage, especially when you've got a testimony coming. So I'm just going to read the first uh, 6 through 10, verses 6 through 10 of Malachi 1. I'm going to touch on the whole portion, but I want to just read this part because it really gets at the heart of what God is saying here. Uh, Malachi 1, 6 through 10. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? I will tell you, this is from, what's on the overhead is from the New Living Translation. I I felt like that translation really uh, captured some of the heart of this verse. And so I wanted to read from that translation. But if you have your own translation, it's fine. You can read along there. But in verse 6, the Lord of heaven's armies says to the priest, which, right, let me just stop right there. God's word will always first be to those of us in leadership. It starts with priests. We can't take somebody where we've not been ourselves. So we have to hear this message for ourselves before we can bring it to anybody else. God said to the priest through Malachi, a son honors his father and a servant respects his master. If I am your father and your mother, where are the honor and respect I deserve? You have shown contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You have shown contempt by offering defiled sacrifices on my altar. And then you ask, how have we defiled the sacrifices? You defile them by saying, the altar of the Lord deserves no respect. When you give blind animals as sacrifices, isn't that wrong? And wasn't it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased? Try giving gifts like that to your governor. He's talking about the the king of Babylon. And see see how pleased he is, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Go ahead, beg God to be merciful to you. But when you bring that kind of offering, why why should you show you any favor at all? Ask the Lord of heaven's armies. How I wish that one of you would shut the temple doors so that these worthless sacrifices could not be offered. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and I will not accept your offerings. You may be seated. So 
So in response to the people's question, what good is it to be God's chosen people if there's no blessing in it? God says in no uncertain terms, the problem here is not me, it's you. The problem is not me, it's you. You see, God's covenant was never understood to be unconditional. It's unconditional in one sense. I mean, God has said, I will bring about my purposes. But it is not unconditional for individuals. It's not, un- it's not unconditional for, for even a people at a particular time and place. God said from the beginning, I have called you to belong to me, and I will make you great, and I will bless the whole world through you if you love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you keep my commandments. And the people of Israel were doing neither. They didn't love him with all their heart and they weren't keeping his commandments. You know, uh, specifically, they were violating Leviticus 22, 17 through 22. I just happened to be reading there just recently in my daily devotional time. And, and, um, and here's what it says in Leviticus 22. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it says here, you must not bring blind animals or lame animals or defective animals when you bring your sacrifice to worship. In other words, God said to them when he was talking when he was teaching them about worship, I want your best, not your leftovers. I want you to bring me your very best. I want you to bring me the first fruits, the best of your livestock. I don't want that which you don't need anyway and would just as soon get rid of. And yet that's exactly what the people of Israel were doing. You know, sometimes we can miss the forest for the trees. Sometimes we can get so wrapped up in the details of a passage that we miss the main point here. And the main point of what God is saying is this. Worship always involves sacrifice, and sacrifice must always be sacrificial. Do you know that there's such thing as sacrifice is not very sacrificial? When we just begin to believe that the things that we offer to God, now we're not just talking about money here, we're talking about our life, right? When the things that we offer God are things that, quite frankly, we would do without anyway, things that we don't truly value, God says, I have called you to bring me your best. I mean, God is so angry, he actually says, I wish someone would shut the door. Just shut the door to the temple. Because you see, there's a time when, when uh, poor worship is worse than, than uh, uh, I mean, it's better to worship not at, not at all than to offer in poor worship. It'd be better just not to worship. I mean, God is basically saying it, you'd be better off uh, to be lost than to act like you're found and bring me the kind of worship that you're bringing. Yeah, I couldn't help but think about Revelation 3, 15 and 16, when God says, I wish that you were cold or hot, but you are lukewarm. I wish, God said, it would be better for you to be cold than to be lukewarm. God says, because you're half-hearted, because you're lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's similar to what he's saying here in Malachi. It would be better for you to be lost 
than to act like you're found when you're not. Now, God is angry here. I mean, I'm going to bring you a testimony of an amazing move of God. And you're thinking, wow, how are we starting here with God being so angry? But I want to remind you something about the anger and, or the wrath of God. We don't like to talk about the wrath of God much anymore, do we? Uh, we'd much rather talk about grace and love. And, and without question, uh, we deeply, deeply love the grace of God. But the Bible never pulls back from the fact that God are times when God is angry. And you know why God is angry at times? I would remind you it's a righteous anger. But anger is ultimately a function of love when it's righteous. You see, God is angry here because he so passionately loves the people of Israel. You know that you don't get angry at people you don't care about? When, when somebody rejects you or betrays you that you don't even really like or know? If somebody says something to you, I mean, sometimes as a bishop, you know, we get these emails from people that are speaking all these bad things toward us. And I got to be honest with you, it doesn't really bother me because I don't even know them and I know they don't know me. But when somebody I love deeply rejects me or hurts me, it can cause anger because my love is so strong. You know, there's a, there are a lot of places in Scripture that, that, that talk about our relationship with God like a, like a marriage. God, um, you know, we, we are the bride and God is, or Jesus is the bridegroom. And I'll tell you that a husband who is not jealous for his wife's love has never loved her in the first place. A husband that would just freely allow his wife to give her love to someone else never loved her in the first place. You see, we are angry because we love deeply. And God is angry here because he loves deeply. But what is it about their worship that made him so angry? It's obvious that they're doing it wrong. They're not doing it the way it was laid out in Leviticus. But God is not angry simply because they're doing it wrong. Can I say to you this morning that God is never just angry at an act of sin? What he really cares about is the heart that gives birth to that sin. What he really cares about is the motive that gives birth to that sin. Because you see, we don't ever act out of uh, ways that are inconsistent with what's in our heart. And ultimately, what we do in our life reflects the true state of our heart. God was not angry simply because they weren't doing it right. He was angry because their hearts were not in it. He was angry because they were bringing him their leftovers and not their best. Now, you might ask yourself, why is it that God wants our best? I mean, is God, uh, is God a narcissist? You know, is God, is God somehow insecure that he needs us to build him up? Uh, the, let me just give a resounding no to that. Um, the same thing with God's jealousy. God's not jealous because he's insecure. God is not jealous 
because somehow he is uh, he's, uh, he's kind of neurotic and he needs us to love him to make himself feel more like God. I want to remind you that God didn't need us at all in the beginning. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were perfectly fulfilled. They, God is sufficient in himself. There is nothing that God needs to make him more full. Do you understand what I'm saying here? God doesn't need us or our love. You know why God created us? Not because he was lonely or empty. God was so full. He was filled to overflowing and out of his great love wanted to lavish his love on us. And, and so here as well, God calls us to bring us, him our best, not because he needs it. God owns a cattle of a thousand hills, right? God wants our best because when we bring our best, it says something very important about the way we see him, about the way we understand who he is. I'll tell you that first of all, God wants our best because he's worthy of it. And we could just stop right there. I mean, that's enough. He is worthy of our best. And God wants us to bring our best as a, as a declaration that God is worthy. God is enough. God says, uh, try taking these uh, uh, blemished sacrifices to your governor and see how he responds to it. How much more so God? God is worthy of our very best. But there's more here because I believe God knows that we give our best to those we love. We give our best to those we love. And God wants to know that we love him with all of our hearts. But I also believe it's because God knows, uh, because giving God something that has no value to us exposes the fact that there's something else that we have that we value more. We don't give God our best because we want that for ourselves. We're willing to give God something that doesn't matter, but we want to keep the best for ourselves. And you see, that's where I think God is really trying to get with the hearts of the people in the book of Malachi. God is saying here, you have lost your, uh, your love for me, and the reason you're not blessed is because I can't give myself fully to you because your heart is not fully with me. Your heart is not fully with me. You see, here's the amazing thing about God's love. God loves us so much, and he wants us to love him with all of our heart so that he can give himself to us freely. He says, you want to know why you're missing out on all the good stuff, all the blessings? It's because your heart is not with me. You know, as I was, I was thinking about this passage, I was thinking about uh, a story of King David in, in the book of 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel 24, um, God has told David to make an altar, and so he needs to go and, and, and to get something for sacrifice. And he goes to this farmer's house. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but uh, he goes to a farmer named Arana, and he, he says, I need some of your, uh, your goods in order to make this sacrifice. And Arana looked at him and said, but, but uh, king, you can have anything you want. I mean, David said, I want to pay you for what you're, you're giving me. And the man said, you're the king. I'm not going to make you pay. You can take whatever you need. You're the king. 
And then David says this, I will make no offering to God that costs me nothing. I will make no offering to God that costs me nothing. Because you see, David desired the heart of God, the love of God, more than he desired anything else, more than he desired power, the power to take whatever he wanted, more than the stuff that he could rightly take for himself. He wanted to give it to God because God's love was the most valuable thing in his life. I want to jump to the New Testament, remind you of another story. Uh, it's a story that at first you might not see the connection here, but I want you to hang with me in this. It's the story in Mark 10 of the rich young ruler. Do you remember this story? A young man came to Jesus, and, and uh, he said to Jesus, I have kept all your commandments since I was a child. What more do I need to do to inherit life, eternal life? Now, why would you ask a question like that? You ask a question like that when what you have is not enough. There was something missing in this young man's life. He had kept all the commandments, and yet he wasn't experiencing the life of God the way he knew he was supposed to. And so he said, Jesus, what am I missing here? What, what, have, what have I not done that I need to do in order to experience the fullness of your life? Jesus said to him, go and sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Now, why would Jesus ask him to do that? Uh, let, me, let me be clear here. The Bible never says anywhere that wealth is inherently wrong. There's nothing wrong with having money. Now, the Bible does say money is very dangerous. You better watch your soul because it will have your soul if you're not careful. The Bible speaks very clearly about the dangers of wealth, but it doesn't say wealth is in and of itself is wrong. So why would Jesus say to him, I want you to sell everything, give it to the poor? I had, never, I had not noticed this until I was talking to a friend about this passage two weeks ago. And he reminded me that just before this passage is another passage. Go to this next slide. Mark 10, 13 through 17. What comes right before the rich young ruler is this. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He was angry. He said to them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children into his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Do you find it interesting that right after that story, we're told this story about a rich, young ruler who says, I have kept all your commandments since I was, what? A child or a boy. I've kept all your commandments. You want to you know what I think is happening here? Here's a key verse in verse 21 where it says, Jesus looked at this young man and loved him. And loved him. 
Jesus is not putting a guilt trip on this young man. He's not trying to shame him. I believe that when Jesus looked at him, you know what he saw? He saw this young man when he was a boy. In his mind's eye, Jesus remembered where this young man was when he was a boy. When the greatest desire of his heart was simply to love God. When the only thing in him was just to do the will of God. But Jesus now looked at this young man and he saw that something got lost along the way. The little boy that loved God with all of his heart was now so attached to his money that he would walk away rather than lay it down. I believe Jesus was not trying to shame him, but inviting him to come home. Somewhere along the way, this boy lost his way. Maybe it was the wealth. Maybe the wealth got hold of his heart. Or maybe it was the complexity that comes with wealth. You know, I think when Jesus talks about being like little children, he's saying, first of all, just be simple. Be simple. Don't let your life become so complicated that you can't just love me with your whole heart and always be radically dependent on me. Let me say to us, all of us, who are part of the richest nation on earth, there is a huge temptation to get lost along the way. To forget what it was like when we first loved Jesus. And we knew that he was the only thing in the world we needed. When we knew that he was the only thing in the world we desired. Jesus wasn't trying to shame this young man. He was calling him home. He was saying, please lay down this stuff that has captured your heart. That has captured your soul. And come back to me like you were when you were a boy. And you see, I believe ultimately that's what, Jesus, that's what God is saying to the people of Malachi, people of Israel in the book of Malachi. He's saying to them, you are, you're not living like my covenant people. You're not living like those who love me with their whole hearts. He's not trying to shame them. He's calling them home. I'm jumping ahead just a bit. Whoever's got Malachi 3, forgive me. But I have to refer to this scripture, Matthew 3, Malachi 3.8, where God says, uh, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. This is the only place in the Bible where God says, test me. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Now, Malachi, God through Malachi is talking here about uh, their gifts, their offerings. But when we come to the New Testament, it becomes crystal clear that uh, money is only one aspect of what we bring to God. Paul says that our act of worship is our whole life. Romans 12, 1. Bring your whole bodies, your whole life, that is your spiritual sacrifice. And this principle holds true here. When we are clinging to anything else, we're not in a place where we can receive everything that God wants to bring. And that's a perfect segue to what we experienced at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. 
I can tell you that uh, Pam and I were in uh, Jerusalem when we first began to see posts and to get texts about what God was doing on the campus of Asbury University. When we got home, it had already been going on for four or five days. Um, over the next several days, we continued to reach out to people. I was supposed to be meeting in Seattle on, on the following Sunday uh, with the other bishops who were going to be together for three days. Uh, we began to talk to each other and said, hey, I think we need to move our meeting from Seattle to Wilmore, Kentucky. We need to get there and see what God is doing. In the meantime, Pam got up, um, I think, Wednesday morning, Tuesday, Wednesday morning, and, and said to me, I think we're supposed to go now. And I think we're supposed to get a, um, I've always called this a VRBO. Somebody told me this week it's Verbo. Which one is it? I've been saying VRBO all these years, and somebody said, you know, man, you're old. That's old school. It's a verbo. Well, Pam said, we're supposed to get a verbo, and we're supposed, she said VRBO too, actually, but we're supposed to get this rental house, and, and we're supposed to provide a place for people who just need to come and don't have anywhere to go. And so we left on Friday, but I want to tell you that, that God's work in my heart started two days earlier. I was on a trip down into South Georgia to meet with a couple of churches, and um, on the way down there, I began to just reflect on what God was doing, all the reports, all the testimonies we were getting from Wilmore, and, and um, their hunger stirred in me a fresh hunger for more of God. I was like, God, I want more of you. Well, when you ask God to give you more, you know what he's going to start with? Let me show you your heart. Let me open up your heart and show you what's in the way. Let me show you what's blocking you from receiving everything I so want to give you. And so I started opening my heart, and God began to show me things deep in my heart, things that, that, that nobody else would know, things that nobody else could see, attitudes, subtle attitudes that were beginning to take root in my heart. And God says, if you want everything I want for you, we've got to deal with that. And so for about an hour, I just began to cry out to God in pure repentance. I mean, I began to just say, God, I don't want anything in my life that is not like you. There's a hunger for holiness, a hunger to be with God, to be like God. And I said, Lord, I don't want anything in my life that is not like you, and I want everything that is of you. I began to just cry out to the Lord, and God began to, to show me. I began to repent, confess, repent, and the Lord began to purify my heart. So by the time we got to Wilmore on that Friday, my heart was ready. We got there. We got the verbo ready for guests, and, and then we said, hey, let, let's go into town. Now, you got to understand, Wilmore is a teeny, tiny town, one traffic light, one, when the college and seminary are gone, there's about 1,500 people there. I mean, this is a tiny town, one grocery store, one traffic light. It's tiny. We rode into town, immediately ran into massive traffic, but we finally got into town, and uh, we ended up parking in the backyard of a friend who lives there. And uh, honestly, we were just going there to, to, to worship ourselves. We just wanted to be a part of what God was doing. We were just going to find a place and, and just join right in with everybody else. But somebody asked us if we would be willing to serve on the prayer team. And so we said, of course, we're happy to do whatever you need. And I'll tell you that when we walked out of that building, 
and Sonny saw what was before us. It was, it was overwhelming, the number of people. By the next day on Saturday, um, there was the main auditorium where all the students were that holds about 1,500 people. Then there's a seminary chapel across the road that holds seven or 800. There's another chapel at the seminary that holds four or 500. And then there's a gym that when it's full holds 12 or 1,500 people. Can I tell you that on Saturday, every one of those buildings was absolutely packed. All of them were packed. Not only that, but the grass in front of Asbury, which is a couple of acres large, is a big, big grassy area in front of the, 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 the college, the university buildings. It was absolutely packed with people. Two or 3,000 people outside watching on big screens in the lawn. And there was a line that was about a half a mile long of people that were trying desperately to get into one of the buildings. And I'll tell you, were there some crazies there? Of course. There's always crazies everywhere, right? Were there people there that just come to gawk, just come to take the pictures and see what was going on because they had heard about it in the news? Yes. But can I tell you the vast majority of those people were there because they were starved for more of God. As we got into the building and people began to come forward, you could look into their eyes you could see brokenness. You could see a deep, deep hunger for everything God wanted for them. And they were ready to lay down anything. Whatever God said to do, they were ready to do it because they wanted God more than anything else in the world. Uh, as we were there, we, you know, the worship was so pure. You know, the crazy thing is uh, there were no lights no special lights. They were ceiling lights. There were no special lights. There, was, there were no fog machine. There was no big sound package. There were no celebrities on stage, not a single one. I'll tell you that a number of celebrities showed up and offered to, to help out if needed. You know, people, if I said their names, you'd know them just like that, who showed up and said, hey, I'm, I'll be glad to lead worship for you if you want uh, Big-name uh, singers were bands that, that said, hey, we're, we're glad to help. And they said, you know, we, we got it. Our kids playing their one guitar or maybe the keyboards, those singers who have never sung together before, just up there singing, uh, singing songs with not, they didn't have lyrics on the, they didn't have an overhead. It was the most pure place of worship I've ever been. And it reminds us, not that there's anything wrong with all this. I mean, I, there's absolutely nothing wrong with the stuff that we might use in worship. But the, the point here is that God doesn't care about all this stuff. What God cares about is the heart that you bring into this place. It, it's, it's, the people up here have to start. I mean, it starts with them. That's, many of them were up here praying before this worship service ever started. And I believe they came up here saying, Lord, we want to come into your presence. But you know what? It's not just about, it's not who's up here. It's who's up there. He's the one that wants your love, your devotion. And when we bring it, even in the simplest terms, God shows up. There were miracles, uh, countless miracles, people being saved, 
Hundreds of people that came to faith in Christ. Uh, Miracles of healing, miracles of deliverance, people coming up saying, I've been addicted to this or that, I want to be free, praying and feeling the chains of addiction fall. People being compelled by God to go to others that had hurt them or they had hurt. Broken relationships. Can I tell you, this is one of the biggest themes of the entire thing. People coming forward and saying, God, I'm so sorry for the way I've treated my mother, my father, my brother, uh, my friend. And, And people making it right, right there. People getting up and going to the other side of the room and saying, brother or sister, I'm so sorry that our relationship is strained. I'm so sorry for what happened, and I want, I want to make it right. God wants to make it right. One of the greatest themes of this whole thing was the reconciliation of people whose relationships had been broken. God was moving in a powerful way. But I want to tell you that um, it's not just what was happening there. You know, we have this tendency to want to just take this and package it up and bring it over here and just kind of plop it down. You know, we think we can just transplant revival from one place to another. Now, I will tell you that there are times when God is moving in such power that to touch that power can transform your life. And I believe God is moving right now that way, not just at Asbury University, but in many places across this country. We were just with 140 free Methodists down in Orlando, and uh, many of them are pastors, church planters, and, and at some point I asked the question, is anybody else experiencing an uptick in the, the presence of God in your worship? And half the room said, oh yeah, uh, God is moving, God is doing something, and I want to tell you, we don't want to miss it. We don't want to miss it. But you know what's even more important? It's to look back and say, what was it that gave birth to that outpouring what was it that that uh, made the context such that God could move in that way and you see that's what we want to transplant what we want to transplant is that let me just let me just walk through a few things that I believe were were critical to what took place at Asbury um, for 16 days non-stop I'm assuming most of you heard this story. For six, you know, it started with a. It started, by the way, with a message that if you want to go find it, you can find it on YouTube, and you you will watch this message and say, "How in the world did that launch a 16-day outpouring of God's Spirit?" The man who preached it walked out and texted his wife and said, "Well, there's one more stinker on my resume." Uh, he said it was it was a bad sermon. They cut him off. They, they cut him off because he was running too long and classes were getting started. And they said, hey, brother, you got to stop. You got to stop talking. And so he just kind of said, well, if anybody feels like they want to stick around or can come back and, you know, if God, God's speaking to you about something, just come back. And he left. 19 students stayed. And those 19 students began to cry out to God. Those 19 students began to confess their sins to one another. And the Spirit of God began to fall on those 19 students. They started calling their friends. And within hours, the gym, I mean, the auditorium was packed. You know, it's one of those things where it wasn't planned. You have to understand this. Nobody planned this revival. There's a sense in which 
what God does comes out of his own sovereignty. God determines when I'm going to move. God determines when he's going to pour out his spirit. But I will say we have great, great testimony in the word of God and in history that there are things that we can do that will make ourselves ready when God is ready to move. And there are things that we can do that will even move the hand of God. That's the most amazing thing of all. God may say, I'm going to do this in my time, but there's, a, there's something we can do that prepares the way for what only God can do. Let me share some of those things here. It's, on, it's already on the overhead here. First of all is prevailing prayer. Uh, I don't have time to tell you all the stories of all the people who have been praying for years for this outpouring. There's a group of people on campus at, at Asbury Seminary, professors, students, that have been praying every Friday for months for an outpouring of God's Spirit. Every Friday they gather, they pray, they cry out to God. And every Friday for more than a year they did that until finally God moved. It was their prevailing prayer that I believe was at the heart of this. There's a, uh, there's a whole community of people Thousands of people, literally, uh, through Seedbed and, and the New Room Conference that many of us here have been to multiple times. They have been praying for a great sowing, for a great awakening, for seven years. For seven years, they've been saying, God wants to do a great awakening in this nation. We need a great awakening in this nation. And for seven years, they've been praying for God to do what he started in Wilmore, Kentucky, a few weeks ago. Secondly, radical confession and repentance. There was a hunger for holiness that filled every part of that outpouring. There were people that were saying, God, I don't want this what I prayed to myself. I don't want anything that's not of you, and I want everything that is of you. There was, a, there was complete surrender. If you want to really boil it down to be to be able and to be ready to be filled with God's Spirit begins with me simply saying, God, everything I am, everything I have is yours. I don't want anything. I'm not going to give you my worst. I'm not going to give you my blind animals. I'm giving you my very best. That's all of me. Everything I've got is yours. Out of that, immediate obedience. I touched on this already. But I think one of the signs that God is moving is that people begin to hear the voice of God calling them to very specific actions, whether that be repentance or to, uh, to make relationships right or to give something to the Lord or to, to follow his call into whatever he's calling you. And people get up and do it immediately. How many times have you talked yourself out of obedience? How many times have you analyze your way out of simply doing what you know God has asked you to do. Immediate obedience. God loves the heart of a people who won't just hear his word, but will do it immediately. Pure worship. I already touched on that. And in deep humility. Can I tell you one of the most beautiful things about this outpouring was the unbelievable humility that characterized everything that took place. Like I said, no celebrities, Great humility. No one wanting the attention. Can I tell you, it was crystal clear. There was only one person in the room who, wanted, who was being lifted up, and that was Jesus. 
Everything was oriented toward Jesus. Not a man, not a woman, not a band, nothing. Jesus was the only one they wanted to lift up. Every, they, didn't even, they didn't introduce people when they came up. They didn't say who they were. People just came up and they offered what they had, and then the Lord continued his work. And there is a deep humility, quite frankly, that is the opposite of so much of what we've seen over the last two or three years. People not standing in humility, but in judgment. People uh, not standing in a place of humbly coming toward one another to help one another walk with Jesus. It's saying, I don't like the way you believe on this or that. I don't like the, your, 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 your ideas or your philosophy around this or that. There was such deep humility that people just came together and said, you know what, we're all broken. We're all broken, and we only want Jesus to be exalted. So let's love each other like he loved us. There was so much love that filled that place. Not a love that says, do whatever you want. A holy love. Holy love that calls us to total surrender. Um, they finally decided to end the meetings at, at, at Asbury on uh, Thursday, 16 days in, which, by the way, is fascinating because um, that was a national collegiate day of prayer for 4,000 schools in the U.S. And years ago, I think two years ago, they decided we're going to host this on the campus of Asbury University. Two years ago, they said we're going to do this national day of prayer in Wilmore, Kentucky on the campus of Asbury University. And after 16 days, Asbury said it's time to end it. Now, I'll tell you, a lot of people criticize them for that. But I want you to know what their heart is. Because their heart is what our heart needs to be here in this place. Their heart was this. We can't keep this to ourselves. We can't turn this into a monument. We can't send the message that this place, you have to come to this place in order to get what God wants to do. It's not about the place. It's about the heart. It's about our hunger for more of God. And so they said, it's time for us to release this completely to take the attention off of Wilmore and Asbury and release it to the world. And, and, and so they said, take this with you. Take it. Take it everywhere you go. Take it with you. Well, the last person that spoke on that last night in Hughes Auditorium was an elderly man who um, said, I was here in 1970. Some of you know there was another historic revival that took place at Asbury in 1970. It, it, in fact, it was part of what led. Anybody seen Jesus Revolution, uh, Revolution, the movie, just come out? It's part of what gave birth to a lot of spiritual things all over the country where God was moving just like this in power. He said, I was here in 1970. He, he's now in his 70s. He was a young man in his 20s when he was there. And he said, I want you to hear me say something. He said, I want you to know, especially those of you who are students. And let me just say, by the way, everything about this was focused on Gen Z. There is a sense, and I'm saying this to you because many of you are sitting right over here in this corner. There is a sense that God is saying, I'm after the hearts of this generation. 
I am after the hearts of this generation. And they will lead us. They will lead us back home to simple, pure devotion to Jesus. He said, I was 18, 19 years old in 1970. I was here when the first revival took place. He said, I want you to hear me say something. I want you to know Pam and I were not together. She was still in Kentucky. I'd come home because I had to be somewhere else. But I was watching it online. And and both of us thought, oh my goodness, he's about to say, you need to be prepared. You're going to have to come down. You know, it's going to, you've been on a mountaintop and now you're going to be down low and it's all this emotion is going to go away. I mean, all that, there's truth in all that. But you know, there was a part of us like, don't end there. And he didn't because this is what he said. I want you to know that you will never be the same. For 53 years, I have been hungry for what God did when I was 18 years old. For 53 years, I have pursued God with all my heart. And I want to tell you, you will never be the same because of what God has done here. And I knew what he meant. Because I'll tell you that... um, I can look back on my own life and I can see places in my life, seasons sometimes, where I knew I was absolutely surrendered to God. When I didn't want anything more than I wanted God. When I was 16 years old and was baptized in the Holy Spirit, there was a time, believe it or not, in a capital campaign here at Christ Community Church where God showed me all these attachments in my life. Just like the rich young ruler, all these attachments that had begun to to get their claws into my soul. And God says, you want to be free? I'm calling you to give radically to this campaign, to give something that we could not understand economically how we could do. God said, give it up. See what I'll do. And I want to tell you, I entered a season of freedom that was unlike any season I'd ever been in, where God just poured out his love in my life. There have been seasons like that. Now, the truth is, we all drift. We all come down from the mountain. That's, there's truth in that, right? But what these moments become is that they become like a plumb line. You know what a plumb line is. It's, it's a weight that hangs on a string so that you always know that whatever you're working on is in perfect alignment. And these experiences with God become a plumb line in my life. And I am constantly um, recalibrating my life back to that plumb line. I won't sit here, stand here and tell you I never leave the plumb line. I do. There are times when I drift away from the plumb line, but the plumb line never goes away. And I'm always called back to the plumb line because it's there that I'm most alive. I pray that you have a plumb line in your life. I pray that you have, pray that you have moments in your life where you can look back and say, in that moment I know all I wanted was God. And I pray that if you're not there today that you will come back to that plumb line that you will come back to that place of total surrender because your father is calling you home. He wants your heart. It's not the stuff. The stuff just indicates where our heart is. He wants your life, your heart. 
I'm going to close with these questions. And then uh, the, the worship team's going to come back. And uh, do we have people that are going to pray this morning, if you will, come on forward down? Because I hope that we can close today. I know we've run a little long, and that's typical for me. I'm sorry. Um, some of you forgot what it was like when I was here. Um, I really thought this was going to be a lot shorter. But you know what? Those students stayed for 16 days. 20, well, they did, not all of them stayed 24-7. This thing never stopped for 20, 16 days. Because you know what? They wanted something more from God than they wanted out there, whatever there is. And uh, I want to say, first of all, let me just ask this question very simply. Have you ever truly accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? I'm not asking if you've tried to be good. I'm not asking you if you're, uh, you're coming to church to try to make God happy or please God. I'm asking, have you ever truly decided, I am no longer my own, I belong to him? If you've not, then I pray that today will be the day of salvation for you. There's somebody here perhaps that's just saying, you know, I, I've been trying to figure this thing out. I've been trying to understand it intellectually. And I can't quite figure it all out. I heard somebody say this past week, if somebody can argue you into the faith, somebody else can argue you out. It's not going to be because intellectually you will figure it all out. You know what will change your life? is an encounter with the living God. And there are so many things about the faith that you will never understand until you have had a genuine encounter with the living God. If you've never had that, I'm asking you to come today. Do not leave this place today until you have asked someone to pray with you to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you have, is there a time in your life when you were fully surrendered to God? And are you holding on to anything that's preventing you from living there right now? What is God calling, what is God asking you to do right now, and will you do it? You see, I'm asking you to enter into that same spirit that we witnessed in Wilmore, Kentucky. In the same spirit, by the way, that God was pleading for in the book of Malachi. This is what God was after. This is what God desired from the people of Israel. Will you surrender to me? Will you get out of your life anything that's keeping you from living in total surrender to me? And will you just be obedient to what I want to do in your life? I'm not, I'm not asking you to be obedient so that I can hurt you or kill you. I want to bless you. But I can't do it unless you're willing to obey. And there might be something you need to do even inside this room where right now you need to act on what God is saying to you. I will tell you, that you will never regret obedience to the voice of the Lord. So I'm going to ask you to stand. Maybe you just need to worship, and that's fine. If you want to worship, worship with your whole heart. But if you need to come down here and do business with God on any of these questions, I want to invite you to come, to come quickly. Come now. Don't, don't let the enemy talk you out of it. Don't let your flesh talk you out of it. Don't let anything keep you from being at that place where God has all of you and you have all of him. Let's worship and respond.
as God leads.